In this episode of 9-2-Y Talks, Hugh Jackman and director Jason Reitman sit down with Real Pieces moderator Annette Ensdorf to discuss their new film, The Front Runner, a riveting docudrama about the scandal that engulfed Senator Gary Hart's run for president in 1988. The conversation was recorded on October 30th, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. <laughs> Welcome. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back, because we had Jason Reitman as a guest before, and... Hugh Jackman before, but never together. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> happy, very happy to be back. Thank you. Going to start with a few questions. We'll take a few from the audience before we finish. Okay, so the casting, Jason. There are a lot of wonderful actors who could have played Gary Hart. They all said no. Yes. I'm so glad. No, I just, I, I'd like to know a little about the process because. <clears throat> Obviously, you've played wonderful fictional characters like Wolverine, and um, <laughs> not to mention um, a real character like P.T. Barnum in The Greatest Showman. So here, here it was going to be a real character. And just talk about the choice of Hugh Jackman, and then we're going to ask you a little bit about more. I mean, obviously, this is kind of one of the most complicated decisions a director can ever make, and there's a million reasons why every director wants to work with Hugh Jackman. Uh, I think the primary ones are his work ethic. He's the hardest working actor in the business. That's just the truth. That's not something that people just say. It's the absolute truth. Uh, his research for this role was impeccable. It is the first time that he was played a real person that is alive today that he knew one day would see the film. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking by him one day, and he had a notebook out. It was about that thick, and on, it was all on Gary Hart. A researcher, put him, a researcher had put it together for him, and I said, my God, are you going to read that whole thing? And he looked at me sheepishly and went, that's book one of five. <laughs> it measured this high. Our production designer learned about Gary Hart from Hugh. Our costumer learned about Gary Hart from Hugh. Our editorial team got clips that were in the movie that you just saw. They came from Hugh. Um, he did, we know him for playing these roles in which his heart beats out of his chest, and he's one of those few actors who feels like he reaches, sorry to be doing this in front of you. Uh, <laughs> he reaches out of the screen and he grabs us. He reaches through our ribs and grabs our heart. Uh, and yet in this movie, he does something he's never done before. He's an enigma. He plays someone we're trying to understand. We're trying to understand his behavior, what's behind his decisions, who he is. And, and you do this impossible thing where you bring us right to the door but never let us in. Um, so, uh, look, his hard work, his exceptional talent, and above all else, his decency. I know that Gary Hart was going to be, we're portraying Gary Hart in the worst week of his life here. And he was a decent human being. Uh, and this was a tough week, and I wanted his decency to echo through, and I know, I knew that Hugh's genuine internal decency would shine through Gary Hart. Oh, thank you. Wow. That's, uh, good reason. It's the truth. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so we now know that you did a lot of research, that you yeah. had these uh, books. I, we do have this recorded. We have all this <laughs> Just want to check. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about the nature of your research besides what you read and watched? And did you meet Gary Hart? At what point in the process? Um, I, I talked with a lot of the campaign uh, team who uh, 
are here tonight, actually. A lot of them are here. And by the way, when, the, when Jason took the film to the Hart family to watch it, uh, a lot of the campaign team from 1987 flew in to watch it with Gary. So they're very tight-knit, and yeah. uh, they were all open to speaking with me. I spoke with them a number of times. And when I finally went to see Gary, and Gary was um, very warm, and I went up to stay with him in Colorado at his house. Uh, okay. I have to tell you, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling you, but his wife had just had a, a, a surgery for something, everything's fine, but their bedroom was in the upstairs. So she couldn't go up the stairs, so they were on a fold-out sofa downstairs in their house. So I was sleeping in Gary's bed. <laughs> and he showed me to the room, and I was, my mind was just spinning. Because he said, listen, that's where Lee's clothes are. I've cleared a little bit of space for your clothes. So I was literally hanging up a shirt, I'm next to him, there's Gary's boots, and I'm sleeping in his bed. So yeah, it was, uh, we, we went deep. We, we went <laughs> but Gary was, uh, so anyway, I met with him and, uh, and his family, and he was warm, and he was open, and uh, wanted, it actually met me at the airport, mm. with the, the trunk of, the, of his Jeep was open, and I'll never forget when he, met me, because every campaign uh, team member that I've met said, this is what, what it'll be like, and this is what you should do, and, and he just disarmed me immediately with his warmth and his uh, openness, and he shook me by the hand, and then grabbed, put his hand on my cheek with the other hand, and a very paternal look, and we sort of connected immediately, and we've maintained a friendship ever since. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Well, if I were Gary Hart and I were told that Hugh Jackman were going to play me... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now... You wanted, you wanted to make sure there were some songs in there. Uh, <laughs> we'd be singing a few. <laughs> has he seen the film? What was his response? Yeah. He has seen the film. Uh, the, he's seen the film, his wife, his kids, the campaign team. Donna Rice has seen the film. Tom Fiedler has seen the film. Uh, it was important to me that we reach out to everybody in advance and talk to them. I wanted them to hear my voice, have my phone number, know that, hey, I'm the guy directing this movie if you want to reach me. And, and they were very giving with information. We, we created these questionnaires that we gave everyone that asked questions like, in 1987, what was your favorite meal? What was your favorite drink? Who was your favorite sports team? What did you always have in your pocket? What kind of car did you drive? Uh, little things that would inform the details in the movie and really help this kind of vast cast that all wanted these kind of rich kind of details. Uh, Gary and Lee watched the film, and you can imagine that was the most terrifying screening of my life. And we went out for hot chocolates after. And the first thing that happened was Gary turned to Lee and said, do I really speak like that? And Lee said, yes, darling, that, that's exactly how you speak. <laughs> He had, a, he, had a, he had a long response, and I, I don't want to betray his privacy. As you can tell from the movie, he's a very private person. Uh, he thought the movie had empathy for him, and uh, everyone did. Donna Rice, in particular, thought the film had empathy for her. Donna Rice, who I think, uh, feels as though, and I think accurately, that she's been treated like an object for 30 years instead of a human being, and was very moved uh, by Sarah's performance. The most remarkable thing to me is when people see the film, and they've been in it, I expect them to go, oh, that was an overwhelming experience to see my life played out. But they don't think of it that way. They think of it as a movie. So the first thing they go is, that was a good movie. I <laughs> like how you shot that. And inevitably, they all say the same thing. 
Hugh Jackman is such a good actor. <laughs> okay. Now, you must have been 10 years old when this entire campaign was uh, taking place. I was. I actually <laughs> lived through that at a slightly more adult age. And um, at what point did you become aware of this particular moment in history? Because it isn't just the story of Senator Gary Hart. You know, I, we'll talk about this perhaps in a moment. Maybe it was the beginning of what we're now calling infotainment. Maybe it was the beginning of a decreasingly fine line between journalism and tabloid. Um, so did you learn about this only in reading Matt Bai's book, All the Truth is Out? Or were you aware of Gary Hart before? No, I, when I was 10 years old, I think I was much more curious about the trajectory, the trajectory of the Back to the Future franchise than I was <laughs> about American politics. Uh, but when I heard, I, this for me started with the Radiolab episode that featured Matt's book. And when I read Matt Bai's book, I just couldn't believe that this had happened, that there was this moment where the presumed next president of the United States was in an alleyway with some other journalists and no one knew what to do. No one had ever been in their shoes before. I mean, it felt like a movie. It felt like, a, like a, a Western standoff in the midst of a film noir. And, and it was a thriller. Uh, and as I began to talk to other people about the story, I realized that everyone had a different opinion on it. People tied, keyed into different characters. Mm. And for people who had lived through it, they misremembered it. That I would ask, people would say, what are you working on now? I'd say the Gary Hart movie, and they would say, oh, monkey business. <laughs> and uh, follow me around. He told them to follow him around, which of course was not the case. And then they remembered a photo, a photo that actually came out many weeks after he had left politics. And they would say, oh, yeah, a photo ruined his career. And, and, and what I'd come to learn was that, no, this, he had left politics and this photograph came out after the fact. This continues to this day. Usually it's the first question in the Q&A, where's the photo? So uh, I became very curious about this week, one week that seemed to change the conversation about public versus private life, um, the relationship between journalists and candidates, the moment where uh, tabloid journalism seemed to leap off the paper into, onto TV and also drive into the lane of political journalism. And also this conversation of gender politics, which of course is what we're talking about every day now. And there was kernels of that here as well. Yeah. And I am assuming that you had never heard of Gary Hart before. I mean, Australia would not necessarily have been following that story. Um, when you first were approached about this, were you particularly eager to have the challenge of a character who's exactly, as Jason was describing, more implosive? In other words, somebody who, although Wolverine often is that too, I, I grant, but somebody mm. who has to keep a certain reserve and lid for a good chunk of the film because mm. the whole point is to guard privacy. You know, the character is guarding his privacy to some extent, maybe the actor has to as well, I don't know. Yeah, no, it, it was a, a challenge that I had never had before. Obviously, a huge part of me wanting to do the film was Jason. Uh, I think Jason's one of the great filmmakers around today. I've been oh, a, thank a, you. And I love, 
I love characters that are human, that are, uh, you know, that are flawed, that are like all of us. Sorry to say, we all are. So, <laughs> and uh, this is a film without heroes and villains. And the lead character is, you know, mercurial, enigmatic, hard to get to know. Yes, he's private, incredibly intelligent. And this mass of contradictions, a very private person who's choosing possibly to have the most public job that the world can offer. So someone who prides ideas um, and ideas, creative ideas for the future. And he had a particular skill. And I was fascinated as I got into it. You read about Gary Hart and the things he wrote about from nine, and spoke about from the late 70s through till the late 80s that have come true 10, yeah. 20, 30 years later. Someone who had this ability to see into the future. And it's hard not to imagine what the world would be like today if he had become president. Mm. But... Even then, this mixture of someone who understood so many things about human nature, about geopolitical systems, about the world, about the military, about education, about so many things, and yet had this blind spot for what was happening with the media. It's, uh, it was fascinating to me. And he, um, to be honest, I see parts of my father in Gary. There was immediately when I was reading it, I was like, oh, there's really parts of my dad in this, parts of my brother who was a Rhodes, Rhodes Scholar, incredibly intelligent. When you're around him, you feel like you're really going to be on your game. And everyone talks about that around Gary. Yeah. Even his closest campaign people said, if it was an important day, they would all be nervous, like if you weren't on your game, because he was operating at such a high level. So there was a, a mass of things that were interesting, fascinating to me. And I'm stealing a line of Jason's and I'm going to steal it for the rest of my life because I, I don't think I quite understood why I acted. But you say I make movies because I have questions I want answered. There's things I don't understand. And uh, that's actually why I act. That's why I'm interested in human nature. I want to understand things about myself, about you, about you, about you, and how this all works. And playing someone like Gary, there were more questions than I've ever been offered in my life before. Mm -hmm. And that's a gift. That's a complete gift. Wow. And um, I know that the source of the script is Matt Bai's book, and mm -hmm. you co-wrote the screenplay with him and Jay Carson, a political strategist. The second time tonight watching the film, I was more aware, though, of your very rich style, even though it's a style the way I love Robert Altman films, where the audience has to work really hard yeah. because there's overlapping dialogue. There are like 10 things taking place simultaneously. Now that you've told me about the questionnaires, I sort of understand why I see the popcorn in one place and the pizza in another place and what they're really drinking and eating. So what I'm curious about is the actual writing of the script and then to what extent, once you were on set, were you sticking to the script or were you, was that seemingly arbitrary camera incredibly choreographed right. <laughs> and you know how did that all happen uh thank you for asking that this is easily the hardest movie i've ever made and making a messy movie requires tons of choreography <laughs> uh so you mentioned matt and jay uh matt by who wrote the book on heart uh wrote for new york times magazine covered five presidencies uh jay carson was the press secretary for hillary clinton for howard dean um, and uh, was involved in writing House Cards. Uh, this was written by 
two other, and, and of course the third writer is the son of the director of Ghostbusters, so we all <laughs> brought something to the table. Uh, but, uh, but really, it is, a, it is a script built on their experience. This is a new thing for me, writing a movie about real events. The plot already exists. So this becomes a film not about what happens, but why does it happen, how does it happen? And the first time we met, I brought them to the house and I said, I want to show you a film. And we watched Michael Ritchie's The Candidate, one, one of my favorite films, and one of my favorite filmmakers. And we started talking about the messiness. And we immediately keyed into an idea which was central to the theme of this film. The central question of the film is what is important, right? What is relevant? What is entertaining? What is innocuous? And we wanted to ask that question cinematically. So to do that cinematically, we present you with information constantly. And as an audience, you were trying to figure out for yourself, wait, what, what do I find important? What do I want to listen to? It starts with the opening shot. You're in a van. The Where's the beef line is happening. But there's two other monitors. And you're pulling out. And you're already having a conversation from the left. And it's a reporter. And as we're moving to him, you're already hearing two people talk to, uh, tell some story, a true story, about <laughs> a golf cart. And, and immediately, we're telling you, this is what the movie's going to be like. You're going to have to, it's, you're not going to be able to track everything. You're not going to be able to figure out which character is the most important character. This is all going to be decisions, all the way down to the final shot of the movie, where there's a TV on one side of the screen, and Gary Hart is making a speech, the most important speech of his career, which is ironic, because it's the last speech of his career, which I think... I'm not sure if that's ever happened before. Yeah. Usually the most important speech is mid-career, you know? <laughs> um, and on the other side of the screen is a husband and wife, a marriage holding on for dear life. And you're again, we're asking you, what do you want to look at? What do you want to see? Uh, I feel like that question is asked of me every single day right now. I pull up my phone in the morning, and I go, oh no. Uh, <laughs> and I look at the news app, and on... In my news app, from the same source, the Post, the Times, one will, one will be an article about the Kavanaugh hearings, the midterms, and then right next to it will be an article about the separation of Ariana Grande and <laughs> Pete Davidson. <laughs> and they are presented with equal weight. <laughs> and it really says something about how we are interpreting the news. Either Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson are politics, uh, or the news is entertainment. Uh, and and we are living in Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, and I think that was kind of right at the heart. And the style of the film uh, gave us an opportunity. And it was choreography. It was sometimes hours of figuring it out and writing s scenes that were not in the script for characters so that they could do dialogue and handing magazines from 1987 out to actors and saying, read this article. This is your dialogue. Explain it to him. And our sound mixer, Steve Morrow, who is exceptional, oh. who did uh, Stars Born this year, did La La Land. I've been working with him since Thank You for Smoking. Um, he, would mark, he would mic every actor, sometimes 12, 15, 20 actors, and he would play his mixer like a piano. Now, usually when you do, you'd make a movie, you shoot close-ups and you shoot shoe shots and you just pick up the people who are on camera, and a mixer in the end, after the film has been cut, mixes all the levels and it makes sense. Steve was mixing this movie live with three conversations at once and pointing your ears. This is a movie where your eyes don't point you, your ears tell you where to look. And what you are hearing in the movie is not something from a final mix, 
but rather something that was done on set in real time, where he is partly helping making that decision of listen to this and listen to that, and on set hearing that live was incredible. Wow. No. No, it creates this um, immediacy, mm. this urgency, and I do think there is a political implication in what you're describing, because most films we watch, it's pre-digested. We are basically absorbing what the vision is. And with a film like this, as with all of Robert Altman's films, I sometimes have to make an active effort to be more engaged, to be more sort of thinking as I'm feeling, mm -hmm. because I can't just absorb one thing. I have to be aware of the multiplicity of stories, of concerns, of, of images. I'm curious, though, for an actor, when you're in a shot where, indeed, the camera is doing all of this and you know <laughs> that 15 other people are mic'd, is it different as an experience mm -hmm. to be shooting with Jason? In a moment, I'll mention some of the other directors for a comparison, but what did it feel like in that sense? Well, I loved it. It was probably the closest to theater that I've ever experienced uh, yeah. on film, uh, that true sense of ensemble. There was 20 actors. We were just uh, together uh, before the screening, and uh, the camaraderie between the, those 20 actors was like nothing I have experienced before in film because we were all literally together. There wasn't like, oh, there's numbers on the call sheet. This is number one, two, three, four, five. Everyone is there. But we didn't. I would walk into that the press conference scene near the end, the last press conference that Gary Hart did, and there was a. An, I remember you saying to me, we pointed. There's there's an X down there. Whenever you're ready, just walk into the X and we'll get going. And uh, so different <laughs> people were throwing questions at me in different orders. Sometimes it was extras. Sometimes it was you know, actors, and, and we were just sort of on the fly. And that was to have, for me, that's what I love about the theater, that feeling that you can trust, have to trust every single person from the crew through to your, your other actors, because you're, you're controlling this together. And it takes a, a director of great confidence, I think, to give the, all the actors that kind of uh, power. That's how it felt. It felt like being on a stage. And was, I mean, stage is known for having more rehearsal than films do. <laughs> Did you have a lot of rehearsal, especially in order to have the tech work, no. or no? I do zero rehearsal. Zero. Uh, the last movie I rehearsed on was Juno, and we only did a day or two. And um, uh, I've always felt like movie is about catching a moment. There's a moment. There's a... You'll only get to hear an actor say something out loud for the first time once. The moment, the moments of chemistry, uh, it's electric. And I want that moment to be on camera. I believe in my actors. There's a reason why I cast them. I know they can do it. I, send, I usually send a note to my actors the night before their first day of shooting, and I say, the one important line I say is, you already know how to do this. It's the truth. That's why I cast you, because you already know how to do this. You don't have to learn to do this. And I believe in myself. We're going to get there. Maybe it'll five takes, maybe it'll be 10, but we're gonna get there, and the moment it happens and it clicks, I want the camera to be rolling. I don't wanna be in a rehearsal studio. Understood. And on top of that, let me add, there was a moment where I was, there was a, a, an important scene, uh, and I confessed to Jason, I said, I'm feeling a little nervous about this scene today. And I'll never forget, Jason said to me, I will never, ever let you go home from a day on one of my films without being fantastic in it without feeling great about what you've done and about you being, and I just went, okay, great. 
great. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> roll, roll, roll now. <laughs> but it's that what I mean. It's the trust that Jason has in his cast that is reciprocated right back. Actually, it's not surprising to me because what we just watched is, among other things, a film about leadership. Mm. A film about somebody who can somehow navigate among multiple needs, a barrage of images and sounds. And I mean, I, I don't want to go too far with this, but I think it was Jay Carson who said that perhaps making a film yeah. and mounting a political campaign have a lot in common. Um, and, and indeed, I would even like to believe that the outcome in both cases mm. needs to be something of lasting import, of significance, mm. not just for the people immediately there, but everyone afterwards. Um, so I don't know if this is fair to say, but maybe you understood that one of the lessons of the Gary Hart story is how to somehow balance individual vision and ego with that sense of community that has to exist for something to truly move forward. I, it's very kind of you. Uh, what, what I learned, I feel like I learned this by my third film, uh, that yes, it's a traveling circus. And when you look at everyone on the cast and crew, everyone who is there is sacrificing their life so they can make this movie. Uh, it's the gig. You leave home, you leave your family, and you develop a new family for a matter of months. You're in a new city, you have a new favorite restaurant, all this stuff, and there's something thrilling about that, but you are sacrificing a lot, and you hope you're sacrificing it for something special. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. But you hope at least has the, the option of being special. And on the subject of leadership, I wanna point back to the man sitting to my left. <laughs> because this is a movie, again, with 20 main characters who are all looking at Hugh, and you cannot imagine a more inspiring movie star to be on set with, who in a movie that is like this, where you see sometimes he is front and center, and sometimes he's doing background work. Sometimes he's on a phone in the background, and there's dialogue happening in the foreground, and his action is just trying to see if a phone works and it doesn't work for him, but it's literally happening in the background of the shot. And, and he cared about that as much as anything else, and because of that, everyone showed up every day. And, and look, this is a set, again, you nailed it as far as the, the way the camera moves, the choreography. There was actors who came up to me at one point and said, am I really in this movie? I'm just, I'm just curious. Uh, and, um, but that comes from leadership. You know, Hugh started doing something, sorry, I'm gonna embarrass you, um, many years ago. He realized that he wanted to have more of a relationship with the crew. He realized at one point that he didn't know one crew person or a different person, and he thought, how can I how can I get to know the crew better? And he started every Friday stopping at like a grocery store or, or something on the way to set, picking up 200 scratcher tickets, like lotto tickets, <laughs> and one by one hands them out to every person on the crew and shakes their hand and thanks them for the week they, they just gave and says good luck this week. Um, I, uh, I have if never heard of anything like that, it's simply exceptional, and it makes all of us, it makes me, it makes the cast, it makes the crew want to come to set, it makes us want to make that sacrifice. You should have scheduled this for a Friday, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was giving my answer, you'd be like, yeah, all right. <laughs> Actually, maybe you should run for political office. Please. <laughs> 
if, if even half of what Jason is describing in terms of your leadership through decency, warmth, good humor, and respect, these are some of the things most <laughs> sorely lacking right now in our political... Uh, <laughs> Okay, I'm going to get a little more serious now. No, you were, you were talking about what it was like to work with Jason, and I was wondering if you could compare a little bit, because you've worked with some of the really major directors of our time. I'm thinking Christopher Nolan with mm. The Prestige, uh, Woody Allen with mm. Scoop, um, Darren Aronofsky with The Fountain, and one of my favorites, because he's a former Columbia student, James Mangold, mm. not only for Logan, the Wolverine films, which he's been very instrumental in, but the first time I ever heard of you was Kate and Leopold. Leopold. Yes. Which was this ah, wow. wonderful <laughs> romantic comedy. Some, yeah. That was James Mangold, too. Yeah. Um, and, and there are, of course, many, many others. But if you could compare what makes Jason a different kind of director, you know, what it is that he was doing with you apart from some of the things that have obviously been stated. I can leave if it's <laughs> you. put me through it now, you're gonna yeah. have to. Okay. Um, you know, I, it's a really, I've worked with a lot, as you said, I've been very fortunate. And if I'm allowed to drop a name on two, uh, it was Nicole Kidman who gave me advice very early on. She was, she was roommates with my wife when she first came to Hollywood. So I've known Nick for years. And when I first started, she, she pulled me aside and she said, Director, director, director. Always look for the best directors. You will learn from your directors. You will become a better actor from your directors. And it's a director's medium. And I, uh, so I re always remembered that. And uh, I've been very, very fortunate. And, and I've worked with directors that can get a, a performance out of you, something you didn't expect in all different kinds of ways. Jason is the rare, one of the rarest of directors that ha I feel has made me a better actor forever for moving on because he has an unbelievable generosity. You can even hear from the way Jason talks uh, now. I'm sitting on stage just going, your clarity is why he is a leader and a storyteller because he has an ability to see the whole um, that I often don't feel, but it's actually not an actor's job. An actor's job is to get inside the character, but... The storytellers, the directors, have it, a way of seeing the whole. And that's what Jason has. It gave me such faith and trust that I could just sort of immerse myself in Gary. And, and it was challenging for me because there were times where it was very rare that I felt like, yeah, we got it. That was the one. Right. That's the thing. Yes, that was Gary. We got it, you know. Um, because the character wouldn't afford that. It was more nefarious, it was harder to get. And I, whether I looked directly at Jason or I just felt it, I had to give up that trust. And with Jason, I had it. I could just, at the end of the day, I would just look and go, we're good, like we're great. And that's, it's, it sounds easy, but it's hard to get, that, to earn that trust. And Jason earned it. He has intelligence, humanity, He's one of the most, he's incredibly decent and one of the most honest people I've ever met. So it's a, another rare thing. Jason is no different now than he was backstage or when he has a party for the crew or on set. He's open and honest and intelligent and genuinely curious. And yeah. uh, I, I hope that this speech means that I can do another five films with you. <laughs> I'm there. Yeah. There in a heartbeat. <laughs> if whatever, 
When J.K. starts saying no, I'll just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know yeah. J.K. Simmons has been in every one of uh, Jason's films, bar one. This is, our, this, is, this is the ninth movie with J.K., yeah. so... He yeah, plays. I hope you like Diablo Cody's scripts. If you do, then we're in. We're ready to go. All right. So this love fest, um, I'm going to you know, put a little, um, I'm going to, what's the word, prick the balloon a little bit, because there is um, a wonderful line, Hart paraphrased Thomas Jefferson and warned, I tremble for my country when I think we may, in fact, get the kind of leaders we deserve, unquote. So I do feel the need to ask about contemporary resonance. I mean, why? I don't know what you're talking about. Why, <laughs> why this film now? In other words, the book came out in 2014, so I understand there's a logistic yeah. reason. We, the book came out, we want to make a film. But do you feel that there's a particular immediacy in terms of our current troubled times right. that this film can help with in some way. Can, they can, if not to answer questions, because obviously a film can't do that, but to help to pose sharper, deeper questions. We wrote this script in 2015, before the presidential election. And it felt relevant then. I could go with less relevance, <laughs> frankly. But it already seemed to speak to things that were on our mind. This was before the presidential election. It was before the Me Too movement. We were on set when that started. So we went into this already feeling as though that Matt Bai had stumbled upon something really interesting here. Uh, we were already in a place where the relationship between candidates and the press was complicated. Something I didn't know going into this movie, and maybe most of you knew this, I didn't know this, was that the primary system started in the 70s. I figured it went back way further than that, but prior to the 70s, it was party bosses at campaigns, at, uh, sorry, at uh, conventions that picked the candidates. And it was only in the mid-70s that that power was put back into the hands of constituents, at which point it was up to us to know who some congressman from one state was and some mayor from another city was and a governor from another state was. And the responsibility fell on journalists to tell us who these people were. And at that point, of course, the next question is, well, what do you want to know? And that's a question we're struggling with. We're trying to answer that. Look, if I said to you, oh, you need heart surgery, do you care about your heart surgeon's marriage? You don't. That <laughs> said, if, a, if a, a candidate, a political leader, is a womanizer, what does that say about how he sees women? Equally important question. And here was a story that acted as an interesting kind of pH test. Here you had this guy who was Kennedy-esque, smart, charismatic, was saying things in the 80s like, America is addicted to oil and that addiction will take us into the Middle East where we will encounter Islamic terrorism and not know how to fight it because we have a military that only knows how to bomb people. Here's a guy who in 1981 met Steve Jobs in the garage in Silicon Valley, came back to the Senate and said, the difference in the future of, for the economy will be people who do or do not know how to use computers, and we need, we need computers in every classroom. Here's also a guy who was complicated and flawed and a human being and had a marriage that was rocky at points and made mistakes, real mistakes. Um, and it was a story that reflected the audience, and the more I told it to people, the more I got different answers. I probably tonight 
Some of you connected with Gary Hart, some of you probably connected with Mamadou Athi, the character, the actor playing A.J. Parker, the young journalist. Some of you connected with um, Ari Grainer, who uh, uh, played the, uh, the woman at the Washington Post. Uh, uh, some of you may have connected with Molly Ephraim, who was the young staffer who was tasked with bringing Donna Rice back to Florida. And that's what interested me about the movie. So as the world changed, as, this, as the presidency came into effect, the closing line actually became very troubling because it became so pointed, actually. And I don't want a movie to be pointed. I want, I feel like it's my job not to cross the finish line, but to hand you the baton and for you guys to finish the baton, to the finish line. It's for you guys to have a conversation. I, all of my movies are, are, they end short. Mm. That's why I love movies. They kick you out the door of the theater and they force you to look at the world through the movie you just watched. It's why I fell in love with Kubrick when I first saw my first Kubrick film, because Kubrick would somehow put something in my stomach and it would stay there for weeks and I couldn't help but see the world the way that his movie made me feel. Uh, Which was your first Kubrick film? Strange Love. Oh. Oh. My dad showed me strange love. It was like, uh, it was like, where have you been keeping this food? It's just like, it's so good. Um, so, so yes, in some ways, that last line, it is as prescient as everything else I just said, uh, and obviously heartbreaking uh, for me, and I presume many of you. Uh, but, but I actually did not want that to be the lasting idea as much as this question of what flaws are we willing to put up with? What kind of human beings do we actually want? And, and if we live in a time when people who experience shame drop out of the race, and people who don't experience shame stay in the race and thrive, <laughs> we have to be cognizant that we have a system that favors the shameless. <laughs> <laughs> You are a very succinct wordsmith, and, uh, <laughs> among other things of artistry. And for you, I mean, is, is there, I know that you're a native Australian, but you've been making your life a lot in the United States. Um, your character, I mean, you play someone who values privacy, um, the sanctity of being private and of political discussion as the, as the really important thing, mm. almost more than the sanctity of marriage vows or, or certainly of the idea of playing the game with the, with the press. And I don't know to what extent perhaps being an actor who's always in the public eye when you're out there, did that in any sense help you to feel the character of someone who's constantly being approached and sometimes assaulted even by those who want to know every private little thing that they can. Yeah, um, I, I have been asked that a little bit. It, mm -hmm. I think it's really important to know that the, what, the microscope that politicians are under is just completely different than, than actors. Now, I think some, personally, I'm quite an open person. If you ask me a question, mm -hmm. uh, I'll probably answer it 99 times out of 100. Uh, that's any of you. If you stop in this, it's just sort of who I am. I don't 
It doesn't feel like a burden to me, that public side of it. I, d I don't, I know many actors and I have friends who really struggle with it, who hate it, who are private, who don't like people coming up in the street. I don't feel, uh, I don't love it, oh my God, this is awesome. <laughs> but at the same time, it doesn't feel like a burden. But I think for someone like Gary, uh, the, the, the extent of that lens, that microscope that is there under, is so all-encompassing. There is not a second's breath. Now, I actually don't know this. It's maybe urban legend, but, uh, um, you know, there are some actors that... Uh, oh, my God, I've just blanked on a name. Won the Oscar last year for three billboards. Francis, Francis McDormand. McDormand. Okay. So I hear that Francis doesn't do a lot of press, right? She won the Oscar. So there is a path to be a very successful, world-class actor and being very private. That's impossible as a policy, literally impossible. So they are different prisms, um, I think, and particularly in terms of personality, Gary and I couldn't be different in that way. For, for me, it is uh, an easier coat to put on for him. I think it was a massive burden um, and something that he talked about a lot. Uh, wanting to have time off, can I go to the bookstore? Can I, can I have right. that break? Um, so yeah, it is very different, and it is a, an amazing time we're in. And I, I find with the movie, I find it questions me more than I question sometimes the system or politicians. Oh, what part am I playing in this? Mm. Um, yeah, I do. I gossip a little bit. Yeah, sometimes I, sometimes I open my app and there's four stories, <laughs> and I, yeah. Oh, Ariana Grande, like I sometimes <laughs> I, But sometimes I do, we're human and I'm like, oh, okay, so you do, we have to work at it. You know, you have to work at being a voter, a citizen. And that's actually something Gary talks a lot about, civic duty. We, mm. He says, everyone says, America, people say it's a democracy. It's not a democracy, it's a republic. And the cornerstone of a republic is civic duty and education. He said, so if every citizen is actively participating in the country, then that republic will be healthy. But if they're not, it won't. And so, yeah. Huh. <clears throat> and I will take audience questions in just a moment, but this is such an important segue. Um, a week ago, I attended the Arthur Miller Foundation Honors, the gala. You were not there, but Tony Kushner, in accepting the Humanitarian Award, immediately started talking about you. He said, Hugh Jackman is a hot humanitarian. <laughs> um, comparing, obviously, in a self-deprecating way to himself. And it made me remember, I had already read countless things about, I mean, I'll just mention a few of them because I think this illustrates what we're talking about. And you, at the 2012 Tony Awards, they gave you a special Tony, not just for your performance, but your humanitarian efforts. Mm. So I, I just wanted for a moment, if you could talk about- We're gonna focus on the hot part, right? The hot- <laughs> Actually, we don't have to. Everyone's seeing the hot part. <laughs> um, but you and your wife, Deborah Lee Furness, you, you've actively supported organizations, the Global Poverty Project, the Worldwide Orphans Fund, you founded the Laughing Man Foundation. You're partnering with, I mean, just like in a few words, is this a kind of absolutely necessary complementary track of your life to the acting? I mean, what is it that leads you to take on so many causes? Um, my, so my hero in terms of public figures would be Paul Newman. I think that's someone who, um, as an actor too, 
someone who's just an incredible actor, uh, incredible movie star, but what he did philanthropically, I, I'm not sure if anyone has matched it really, um, but that, that would be the North Star because I think that's someone who had an open, generous heart and his fame just allowed it to be even more open and even more generous So, and, and smart and fun. He just had fun with it all. And hot. And hot. I was about to say that. <laughs> I mean, you oh. took the word out of my mouth. Right. So, okay. uh, and my parents were both, and to this day, uh, my mum's still a very uh, big volunteer. They volunteer. So it was something that was always taught to us as being part of life. And hey, none of you are here. You are all part of a community. You're here because you believe in community. And and if you have the opportunity to give back, then I think it is a duty. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Mm. Um, we can take a few questions. Um, okay, there is a gentleman on the aisle. Oh, and, and uh, the, the woman right in front. Okay, go ahead. Yes? Uh, hi, um, so uh, I was wondering sort of if you could talk a little bit, I mean, I know this is probably a common question, but talk a little bit about how you sort of, how do you personally sort of transition internally uh, and externally between roles, like a role like, for example, like we just recently did, E.T. Barber, who really cared very much, or at least tried to care very much for his family, but didn't really particularly care so much for his being in the The question is about the nature, the, the kind of transition between playing a role like P.T. Barnum, who didn't necessarily care that much about his family. No, who didn't care about his family. I'm sorry, who did care about his family, and then to play a role like this. Versus playing yeah. a character who might care more about the public, or at least media. Yeah, no, uh, it's a great question, I've, and I've probably spent 25 years trying to hone that process for me. I mean, ultimately, if I can bring it down to something clear, you, you do look for triggers as an actor. So those triggers could be emotional, it could be music, it could be text, it could be, it's always the other actors you work with, but you need a, a kind of shorthand so that you can be offset and call your wife and conduct your life and then be able to go back in and drop mm -hmm. in. But it, it always takes a little bit of time at the beginning, uh, the first week or two. Uh, I've, for example, the accent, I'll stay in the accent longer. Mm. at the beginning, and then by the end, I'm easier, can drop it and yeah. in and out. There are d different things, but there's, there's emotional, there's spiritual, there's mental, there's so many different aspects to who we are. I think the thing to remember is how different we all are in different situations and how many more emotions. As, as we get older, we say, well, I'm not that kind of person. But if anyone's got kids, you realize kids can be completely demonic and angelic and conniving <laughs> and generous and kind. They're actually everything, to be honest. And mm. the thing about being an actor That's is great. it just keeps you being a kid longer and then mm. sort of being able to craft it, I suppose. That's great. And you draw those aspects and of look, yourself out. And look, this is the library, is people, you know, and being open and curious. Okay, uh, on the aisle there and then over here. Uh, great question. You are correct. Uh, it happened the week before he announced, uh, and this became a question of filmmaking and storytelling. Uh, and we tried cutting it that way, and it, the, the arc of the story did not work quite as well. Uh, and there's always decisions that you have to make as filmmakers. At the end of the day, 
the devotion towards emotional truth has to be stronger than the devotion to uh, specific facts and dates. And uh, for instance, uh, the character A.J. Parker, played by Mamadou Athi in the film, uh, is based on two human beings. It's based on Paul Taylor of the Washington Post, uh, who uh, asked Gary Hart uh, if uh, he had ever committed adultery. And it's also uh, based on uh, E.J. Dion of the New York Times, who is the journalist who got the follow me around quote. Uh, we turned them into one human being because we wanted one consistent arc of a journalist who was enamored with Hart and was toiling with this decision of whether or not to ask him this personal question while feeling the pressure from his the editorial staff and the newspaper uh, about whether they control the story anymore. So there's, there's decisions like this that we have to make as storytellers along the way, and that was one of them. Uh, yes, uh, Sally. <laughs> I'm just going to repeat the beginning. I had the pleasure of working on Senator Gary Hart's campaign in New York City. A legendary publicist named Lois Smith was brought in to work on the Hollywood aspect of the campaign. So the question is, because there is a direct allusion to Warren Beatty in the film, did you have any contact with Warren Beatty or Robert Redford or other actors who have taken on these political roles? Yeah. Right. So, and, and this points to these Hollywood actors who are extremely committed and, you know, help trying to involve in, in political causes. Uh, yeah, Warren Beatty and Gary Hart remain very close to this day. Uh, Gary Hart considers Warren Beatty to be one of his closest friends. Uh, and by pure coincidence, driving over here today, I got a call from Warren Beatty, <laughs> who watched the movie this morning. And he loved it. He loved it, he loved how it portrayed Gary. He thought that we nailed it. He thought Hugh was absolutely incredible in the film. Uh, no surprise. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, I spoke to Warren at one point earlier on uh, about, uh, about Hart, but it was not as revelatory as my conversations with the campaign staff who, like you, devoted their lives to trying to get this guy elected and who did live day in, day out, and were completely heartbroken, um, and who have all gone on to do amazing things. That's kind of one of the fascinating things about this campaign team. When you're looking at those young people around that table, you're looking at uh, the future ambassador to Germany under Obama. You're looking at the highest ranking uh, gay official ever to be in the Pentagon. You're looking at people who have ran for governor, people who have run for Congress. You're looking at... Uh, 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 Joe Trippi, who, uh, who just won uh, Alabama for, um, uh, sorry, Georgia for uh, Doug Jones. Alabama or Georgia? Now I'm forgetting. Alabama for Doug Jones. He was his campaign uh, head. So uh, it was an amazing group of people that came together to, to get this guy elected. 
And did you ever talk to Redford, maybe anybody? A little bit to Warren, um, and uh, but not, not to Redford or anyone else, but. Okay, um, there are so many hands and we have to leave in a minute. The gentleman right here in the middle. With the research that you have done with Matt Bai and, and the book, have you heard the recent theory that fake news was involved right. at the time? So what you're referring to is the Lee Atwater story that came out in The Atlantic three weeks ago. Um, so uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, three weeks ago, uh, The Atlantic published an article, uh, Lee Atwater, do you guys uh, know Lee Atwater, who ran the Bush campaign and um, uh, uh, who died very young. Uh, and had been known for, uh, I don't even know kind of how to describe uh, the way he ran campaigns, but he ran them uh, like it was a blood sport. And he admitted on his deathbed that he had hired the boat, the monkey business, in an attempt to plan this event. Um, maybe it is true, maybe it is not true. I don't think it matters. I think Gary Hart went to a party on a boat and met a woman and they had chemistry and they kept in touch and he invited her to his uh, townhouse in DC. I don't know who can orchestrate that. I think that's two human beings. The question is, is it our business or not? I don't know the answer to that. But certainly in this moment, that question that we really didn't think about much, we just kind of turned it into a national joke rather than give it really the merit of thought and it put us on a trajectory. Uh, so I suppose the Lee Atwater story falls into the same category that everything that we're talking about is. Is this interesting, is this important, or is this just entertaining? Well, there is a kind of healthy skepticism that I think the film invites us to contemplate. It also, I think, in the long run asks us something that I've heard you say in another occasion, what are we not talking about when we start talking about marital infidelity in a political campaign? Yeah. What happens to priorities of right. political vision, discourse, policy? And these are issues that I think are <laughs> deeply embedded in our moment. I don't think it's a coincidence that this film is opening in New York on November 6th. <laughs> um, and uh, uh. so we have in this room a, a double responsibility, which is, of course, tell your friends and acquaintances that whether it's the Lincoln Square or the, yeah, the Lincoln Square or the Union Square, they can see the film starting next Tuesday, and to vote. And <laughs> um, we basically stole these gentlemen away from their premiere tonight. They snuck out in order to be with us for an hour. I'm going to let them go back. <laughs> Thank Jason Reitman and Hugh Jackman for being with us. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.